This is uh, the third in a three-part series on the uh, classical um, list. Um, in Buddhism, the teachings were recorded often in this list form, and um, uh, the, that is really helpful to remember certain things. And so this is a particular list called the Three Characteristics, and um, these are uh, characteristics or truths of uh, of existence. Um, the, they are taught within the Buddhist tradition, but they're it's not really about a Buddhist thing. This is um, these are things that you can recognize no matter what your belief system is. Um, and so we we started the series with impermanence. This truth about how um, all things come into existence and then at some point change or fade away. Um, That we ourselves are very impermanent, not just in our lifespan, but um, the way that our our bodies regenerate, our cells regenerate just... Uh, so much about us is in this constant flux that we may or may not be attuned to. And so part of this evening is bringing back this particular truth and seeing how when we're not um, conscious of it, that it can create a certain form of suffering. So we'll come back to that. The second uh, part in this three-part series was on not-self. Um, looking at uh, what it is we we call us and seeing where are we grasping or getting too tight around the idea of us. Where are we not um, in alignment with this uh, truth of internal change and flux? Um, where are we deluded even around who we really are? And then tonight we'll expand that to see how that, again, can bring a lot of suffering when we um, hold tightly to a sense of, of self that may be not accurate and actually quite limiting to the fullness of who we are in each moment. So then it brings us to this evening. This evening, um, we're talking about um, what is in the Pali language uh, called dukkha, this word dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering. It has other translations, though, too, that I find really helpful. Sometimes it's translated into stress. Suffering feels immense. And we get that, right? We, we understand what that feels like to really be suffering or to be um, witness to suffering. Um, but what about the subtler layers of dukkha? And so stress is sometimes used to point out that there's so many different ways that we suffer. And sometimes it is just this experience of stress. Or tonight I'm going to be referring more to the somatic experience of this, which is like a tightness a tightness in the mind, a tightness in the heart. Uh, 
We'll also be exploring this word dukkha in its other translation this evening, which is unsatisfactoriness. This experience of not quite being satisfied with what's here in this moment and what that brings in um, to our experience. So before I really go into it, I, I thought it would be nice to hear from you um, what your relationship with this word is. Um, you don't have to participate if you want to stay quiet. Um, but sometimes what we do in this group is pair you off, just have you turn towards someone near you to have a quick um, discussion around something. And so I'd like you to do that. Um, I don't usually do it right away. Usually we have some time to kind of get into the talk, but um, I actually want to base this talk more on what I hear from you and then kind of riff a little bit off of that. Um, so if you don't mind participating, uh, just turn towards somebody close to you. You might know them, you might not. Start by introducing yourself if you don't know them. Groups of two are good. If you've got a, a group of three, that's also fine. Okay. So, <laughs> so what I want you to, to, to answer is um, the question that essentially got the Buddha started on his path, which is, um, what makes us suffer? Or why do we suffer? What is it that creates this suffering? Or if you want to retranslate it to unsatisfactoriness or to stress, however that really is resonating. And, and I'd like it if you answered it from your own personal experience of it, not just how do we, the greater we, but how do really you suffer? Why Why do you suffer? What is it that happens for you that, that creates that extra stress or that unsatisfactoriness with life? And you can take a moment to think about that a little bit. There's no perfect answer. You don't have to go deep down into your life history around this. But but give, you know, to give some kind of response um, to the person in front of you, they're going to listen, and then they're going to share with you what what's on their mind around this. And um, and then once you both have shared, you can go back and forth a little bit. Okay. So um, someone will begin, and, um, and the other will follow. Good. So um, let's hear from a few of you. How do we, how do you suffer? Why do you suffer? The theme of, I was talking to two people. We were a triad. Mm -hmm. The theme of our suffering that's up right now for us is just being really mean to ourselves. Mm -hmm. All three of you that came up. Yeah. As a, as a theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in a reaction to it, you know, I made a mistake or I'm jealous of that person's happiness. What a terrible person I am or 
that kind of stuff. Thank you. Love the word unsatisfactoriness, by the way. (laughs) We'll bring it back. (laughs) Yeah, Jim. Um, Vanessa. Vanessa used the word expectations. Uh Um, uh, And we kind of agreed that, you know, not meeting expectation, not having expectations met is a pretty major key. Uh, and then we both identified that there's you know, lots of moments that we have that, you know, it's just perfect. <laughs> this is great. And then we expect life, that's the way life ought to be, maybe. And, uh, it is for moments. <laughs> but it changes, um, subsequently. Yeah. We're not in as much control as we'd like to be, and life is impermanent. Yeah. Is there a hand up over here? Yeah. Great. Not not just discontent with what is, but um, the f- the fear of losing what is, yeah. being happy with the way things are, and the fear of losing it in the yeah. future. Thank you. How about in the back here? Um, I had the experience of just like a word popping into my head as soon as you said suffering that I felt it, it was that was linked to, and that word was scarcity. And I was trying to articulate it to Michael. Um, it was struggling to be eloquent with my words, but to me in this moment, suffering is really linked to operating in all moments from scarcity Mm. and all levels of that. Yeah. Thank you. And just the fear that's underlying that. Yeah. That's suffering. I, I, uh, uh, I was talking with Nathan and, uh, one of the things for me, especially, kind of before I came into this practice was um, uh, the dissidence between what I wanted and what I was actually experiencing and not really admitting to that dissidence. But it the size of that tended to very much coincide with how much actual suffering I felt like I was having. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Well, I, I am still having a trouble like integrating the three levels of, uh, of dukkha, you know, because I mean, for me, unsatisfactoriness is just, I mean, it's a normal state of affairs. And in fact, some people would consider it to be a good thing because it, you know, would spur you on, you know, because if everything's satisfactory, you don't do anything, right? So, but unsatisfactoriness might be seen as a good thing by some people. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then there's that other meaning of like suffering, you know, you know, big clouds and things like that. And yeah. I'm, I'm having real trouble kind of working the two together and, you know, wondering, you know, why is it translated sometimes as, you know, one and sometimes as the other? I mean, yeah. is there a reason for that or? Yeah. We'll get, I, we'll get into that. That's, yeah, we're going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Great. Anything else to add? This is a, it's a good, 
grouping <laughs> of of, uh, of reasons or ways that we suffer. Yeah. This this suffering, um, if dukkha, if we're using it in in this translation of suffering, um, this is what first kind of took hold in the mind of the Buddha, even before he was enlightened, before he was the Buddha, um, that there just was this undercurrent of something running through the human experience, um, that there was this suffering that was was this part of the human experience. And so the question was, uh, pretty much, was, well, how, how is this happening? Why is that happening? And then is there a way in which we can release ourselves from that patterning? And the teachings of Buddhism are based on these questions uh, around suffering. And so we talk about suffering a lot in this tradition. And... um for some, that's a bit of a turnoff because we don't really we don't want to talk about suffering. We don't want to look at that stuff. We want to talk about joy and expansiveness and connectedness and happiness and all of these things. We were at least wanting to come here and have those things happen to us through the practice, right? And so, okay, yes, there's the suffering, and we'll look at that. But the purpose is all this other stuff. Um, and so maybe that's why we end up talking a lot about suffering is because it's through the understanding of how we generate these patterns of suffering within ourselves. Um, it's through that understanding how that happens and then how to let go of those patterns, how to or reroute them, um, how to do it differently, how to catch them how to disengage these patterns. That's where this, these experiences of more contentment and happiness and ease and peace, um, equanimity, compassion, that's where it comes from. It comes from wisdom. It's born out of wisdom. Those states uh, are born out of wisdom. The ones that don't just, you know, of course we can experience joy and happiness and things like that from a spontaneous moment. This just happened and I'm happy. Yes, that's true. But I think what we're, we're talking about is, um, something that is deeper and something that is coming from, uh, this understanding, this wisdom. So that's why, uh, it's really important that we turn towards uh, the suffering, the dukkha, to better understand it over and over. And we can't not, when we sit in these meditations for 45 minutes and it's hot and it's stuffy in here and maybe our mind isn't settling down or our body hurts, um, you know, maybe we're, we ate too much or we're hungry or we're tired. We just, you know, are wondering why didn't I just go to bed early or we're thinking about our commute home or whatever it is. Um, the suffering is there. <laughs> we just have to get still and turn our attention inward, and there it is. Um, oftentimes, we don't have to go looking very far for for it. And so then it's about how do we relate to it. 
you know, much of this um, practice, it's, uh, this truth about about dukkha, it, it's not that you come to some point in your spiritual development here that um, suddenly uh, you're without body discomfort or um, the mind always just um, is just so, although it does get more malleable as you go along. Um, it doesn't change the reality that things change. It doesn't make you more in control in the ways that perhaps you wish you were. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't lose the people and the things that you love. All of this still happens. This is all part of the human experience. But what it is about is changing your relationship with these truths. How are you relating to it? There's different ways to approach that, and I think that almost every night that we're here on Thursday, we're approaching it from a different angle. In fact, if you feel like, I feel like I've heard this talk before, you probably have. (laughs) We're basically saying the same things over and over again, which isn't a bad thing, because we need to hear it from different voices and different viewpoints, and we just keep looking at these things from different angles. And some nights it's like, yes, that totally makes sense. And other nights it's like, no, I don't relate to it or I'm not ready for that one yet. Um, So we just, we keep hearing it. So there's different ways to approach this. Um, This evening what I thought would be interesting is to look at suffering um, more from this uh, idea of it being um, a tightness in uh, the mind and heart. So um, in Buddhism, the heart and the mind are one thing. It's not these aren't. It's not a separate thing, and it's not really talking about the physical heart. Um, that that uh, uh, in fact, I believe. Although I don't have the language right now, I, it'd be nice to have it. So I'll bring it another night. There's a word in Thai. Um, and it's essentially, it's, it's heart-mind. It's the same thing. They're referring to the same thing. There isn't separation. Uh, so this, this dukkha is this constriction in the heart and mind. Uh, constricting around something because of our views. Um, certain ideas that we have that are rooted in not seeing uh, the full picture, or, or not um, uh, seeing our blind spots in our knowledge. And so we develop these habits of tightening around things. Something doesn't go our way. You know, we lose something that is precious to us. You know, um, we say something stupid you know, in a social thing, and just think, oh, that was really dumb. We judge ourselves. Um, We compare ourselves to somebody else. Man, they've got it all worked out. Or we judge others. You know, well, they don't have it so figured out. 
there's all these different ways where we um, have this patterning to tighten around experience. And so much of this practice is slowly sometimes, sometimes very, very slowly, is releasing this grip, this, this clinging to what we think should be happening. Um, you know, where we, we think um, something should be permanent. You know, how many things in your life right now, you just assume it will be there in the next moment. How many people in your lives right now do you just assume will be there in the next moment? When we're not in alignment with that truth, there's, there's a tightness around that expectation. And then when it's shattered, we shatter with it. Right? In fact, we don't just shatter, we get more contracted often. Because it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right. But all along it was going to happen. Um, meaning, you know, this is how things go. Things come and they go. People come and they go. We don't live our lives in that truth, right? We don't say the things we really want to say. We don't um, uh, always treat people like, this is the last time I'll see you, right? We don't always um, acknowledge and enjoy the things that we find really precious or those places that we find really precious. Just assume... They're always going to be there. And so a lot of the time we are um, creating this uh, relationship with happiness, this sense of happiness or satisfactoriness by um, assuming that the things that are really important are somehow permanent to us. Um, and we rely on that on some level for our happiness. Right? Um, so there's there's inevitable dukkha. Inevitable dukkha right there. You might not feel it in the moment, but it's an inevitable dukkha when, when we are um, not aware that that's what we're doing. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. We don't become robots in this practice. You know, we... Um, uh, experience loss and we experience it fully we can go through the stages of grief. Um, there just isn't this tightness around it. There isn't a resistance. There's nothing to resist because we know or we knew fully beforehand that this was a possibility. And so now it's time to grieve because this has happened. It's, this has come. Does that make sense in terms of impermanence? Yeah. And so these these expectations outside of ourselves, um, we we cling in that way. Uh, we also can be in this relationship with experience, depending on whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant experience. So um, when things come up that are unpleasant, and this is similar to this idea of loss, but it can be expanded now to many possibilities. Uh, you know, when we experience something that has um, that is unpleasant, 
Um, and there's this idea that it shouldn't be happening or we want something else to be happening. And we start to guard ourselves against it. We go into these states of aversion or hatred around it. And we can feel that in our heart and mind, just that contraction around. And it can be really subtle. It can be just this slight, mm, I really like that. It's really natural. Um, same with pleasant. Someone mentioned uh, uh, around pleasant that, um, you know, there's this expectation that it that um, it should always be there, or this fear that it might um, disappear, and so we get kind of greedy with those things. Or we're we're we've got this one thing, and we're already reaching ahead to get more, just in case. The scarcity that you mentioned, right? This is a bit of a silly example, but um, I was just at this uh, event um, at a preschool. Uh, it was an ice cream social. This is my, my son's ice cream social. Um, we're about to start preschool. And, um, you know, I, I turned over to one kid who had a mouth covered in chocolate ice cream and the cone was still up at his mouth. And he's reaching forward and saying, I want strawberry. <laughs> And it's so cute, and you'd expect nothing less from a four, three, or four-year-old. Um, but that's kind of what we do, right? Like we um, we almost miss the value of the bounty that we have because we're already, you know, stocking up for the next uh, pleasant experience, right? And in that is there's a contraction. We're not we're not there for what is happening. We're not there to experience you know, even the subtle moments of real pleasantness. You know, it could be anything. It could be just a moment where uh, you know, we're walking down the street and we just tune into, oh, this is kind of nice. It's nice out today. Walking to, you know, the bus stop or I'm walking my dog or whatever, and that feels pretty good. It can be so subtle. Um, it can be a, a quick interaction with another person. You know, it just be uh, someone passing by and saying, hi, and you say hi back. You know those moments that are just, you know, pass by, but there's, there's sweetness in that. And if we're, our mind is somewhere else, like where we have to get to next to have our really pleasant experience, you know, maybe you're on your way to Starbucks and you can't wait to have your, you know, mocha chip whatever, <laughs> frappe grande. <laughs> I don't go there, obviously. But anyway, it's on your mind and that person passes and it gives you that sweet moment of attention. Hello. Uh, and you miss it because you're focused on something that might happen that'll be really satisfying. And so, we don't find satisfaction in the pleasant either. When we're, we're constantly looking for something to satisfy us, we're actually missing the satisfaction in the moment. And so this is contraction. This is a contracted uh, heart and mind. I want to say about that. 
So we um, oftentimes, whether it's before we come to this practice, but I mean, I think to be real, it's even when we're in this practice, we're in this habit of looking outside of ourselves for that thing that will bring us peace, joy, connection, meaning, um, justice, whatever it is. And we're, we're looking, 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 looking outside of ourselves. And it doesn't happen. Not fully. You might get moments. And those, that's real. It's not that that's not real, but it's not permanent. And we're craving the permanence of this. There's something in our humanness that craves the permanence of this. And so we're contracted, so contracted, looking, looking outside ourselves. Then we come to something like this. We come to meditation. Maybe we come to Buddhism. Maybe we come to some other practice that tells us, okay, now it's time to look inwardly. But we bring that same understanding of looking for the thing inwardly now that's going to bring us that lasting happiness and satisfaction. It's so disappointing when we realize that there's no thing or or that, you know, that one experience that we think that'll be it that satisfies that unsatisfactoriness. This is why this third characteristic of dukkha is translated to unsatisfactoriness. It's pointing to the truth that there is no thing, internally or externally, that is ultimately satisfying. Raise your hand if that's really disappointing to you. (laughs) I like your honesty. (laughs) Yeah, so you're right. It's really natural. (laughs) Life, this human experience, is actually totally unsatisfying as far as long-lasting. Okay, good news. (laughs) That peace, that um, resting, that release of the contracted mind, It comes when we fully understand that truth, that that satisfactoriness is not in anything externally or internally. That is actually the good news. (laughs) That, That reaching and looking and searching and needing and uh, the shoulds that come in around it all should be this way, it shouldn't be that way. Um, I like this, I hate this, you know, all of that. Uh, we can release that. We don't have to do that. That pull and push, that, that tightening in our heart and mind. What if we just didn't do that? that this uh, more uh, permanent uh, resting of the mind, this release of the mind and heart, happens when we really, truly understand that that life internally and externally is unsatisfying. It's actually this big sigh of relief that the mind and the heart does. I'm guessing that some of you have experienced this. Those moments 
where you're just trying so hard for something and it just seems like you're in a knot around it. And at some point, maybe you realize you're not going to get what you really wanted or you realize that you are the stumbling block to what you really want. And you go from this to this. And those moments where you just relax back and go, you know, either I give up. Sometimes it sounds like I give up. Um, sometimes it can be this internal letting go, just let go of this. Or letting you know, go, letting go to go in, just to go into this is the experience right now. This is really what's happening right now. What is it like to relax around the edges of that um, truth? And let yourself be in, yeah, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, this is really pleasant. Um, this is just kind of a neutral moment that normally I wouldn't care two hoots about. But it is what it is. It is the moment that I have in this moment. Uh, so this is the relaxing of the heart and mind. Ultimately, this is awakening. When we talk about awakening and nibbana, um, this is a state that we're talking about. Most of us will experience moments of this. We get tastes of it. We learn how to access it more quickly, more directly uh, through this practice by continuing to look at how is it that we contract? Why is it that we contract this mind and this heart? And then learning to relax it through the practices that are available. This relaxed heart and mind doesn't mean that we go into, you know, a whatever mode. It doesn't make us so relaxed that we become doormats. It doesn't mean that... Um, our attitude becomes, you know, uh, it's all good, man. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. In fact, when our mind uh, opens, when we're not in that contracted state, when our heart is not in that contracted state, what it's capable of is so much more than a contracted mind and heart. So you can use this example of, uh, the fist. If you maybe I've done this in here before, but if you take your hand and make a fist and hold it lightly, you can do this with me. Hold it lightly, and you can tell there's there's some effort going towards that, right? Um, and as you're holding it, you're going to notice that the muscles are really working, and then you start feeling it in your arm and in your shoulder, right? It starts to get uncomfortable, but you know you can probably handle it for a little bit longer, right? <laughs> this is kind of, this is our, our, um, our average heart and mind <laughs> state of contraction, right? It's uncomfortable, but over time that discomfort gets heavy, right? It's burdensome. Okay, now really, uh, make a fist. Put your effort into it. This is when we are in those very contracted states. And look at your fist. Look how limiting this is. Now, if someone needed a hand, 
um, if you wanted to extend help or care towards someone, it wouldn't be with this contracted hand, would it? You know, like, this isn't the same as, as this, right? It's very limiting. And this is kind of a silly example, but it, it gives you this idea of, yeah, this is what it's like to respond with a heart and mind that's really contracted. Okay, now you can release, rest it. Yeah. Ah. Ah. Now, there's so much more that you can do. It's expansive. Um, when the heart is open, the mind is open like this, it's creative. Uh, it's compassionate. It's responsive. You know, it's, it's suddenly a, an awake person doesn't just sit around all day. They're responding moment to moment in an appropriate way with wisdom. And it's through that wisdom that they respond with compassion when they see suffering. Uh, it's with real equanimity when they see um, kind of the larger picture of what's playing out in this moment. Um, selflessness often um, can be experienced through this feeling of equanimity, seeing kind of the bigger fabric of what's happening. When someone is really happy or something really joyful is happening, the heart just opens naturally because there's nothing constricting it. There isn't a feeling like your happiness is draining my happiness or for some, you know, somehow, um, if you get your piece of happiness, that's going to take away from my possibility of happy, happy, happiness. That's a contracted mind and heart. An open, expansive mind and heart shares in that joy. We feel the uplift of other people's happiness, and we and we join them in that. When there's injustice, when there um, is real hate and harm and ignorance happening, um, to respond uh, is the appropriate response. You know, there isn't kind of like eh, should I, shouldn't I, or um, you know, kind of bulldozing in with. Uh, your own hatred and confusion because you're um, contracted by what's happening. This is natural. This is what we do. But what if we did it in this other way? What would the results be? So this is the possibility um, when we're talking about um, really understanding this particular truth of unsatisfactoriness that we can rest, we can release into this understanding that there is no thing externally and internally that's worth all this contraction. Now, just saying that doesn't wake everybody up, unless it did, and that's great. (laughs) But I doubt it. (laughs) No, it takes practice. It takes a lot of work, actually. It's a lot of retraining the mind. It only knows maybe one or two ways, right? Um, and so it's through the practices of the meditation that we do here, um, cultivating more presence and mindfulness 
turning towards the difficulty, but doing so with this tenderness of heart that uh, is gentle and available. Um, cultivating the Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities um, in Buddhism, um, so that we can meet the moment with more friendliness um, or with more compassion, that um, we can fully experience the joy when it's there and really understand the value of equanimity. So all of this is within the practices, um, the way that you live, the choices that you make, the things that you say, the actions that you take, um, all of it becomes practice. Each of these becomes an opportunity to see, are we in this state? Why? How did I get there? Or um, is there some way I can release that? Or being conscious, I am not in that state. I can really feel the uncontracted mind right now. This is what that is. Why? How did that happen? And so we make everything that we do, our relationships that we're in, the work, whatever it is that we do, um, the practice touches all of it. Nothing is left out. And this is why we have to be that attentive and integrate all of this. It's no good if it's just on the cushion. It has to come off the cushion. We have to integrate all of this to really come into this particular truth of understanding there is no thing outside or inside that is ultimately satisfying. And then learning to rest in that. So I think I'll stop there. Um, and I wonder if there is, uh, if there are any questions. We have time for just a couple questions and then, uh, I'll end us on time tonight. Yeah. Uh, hang on, Jim. Let's. Um, I had two thoughts tonight that I've never had before and I'm interested in your <laughs> thoughts about my thoughts. The first <laughs> is, um, we're in the insight tradition, which is kind of built up around the Satipatthana Sutta or the Sutta of mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. And the first noble truth happens at the very tail end of that. <laughs> That's true. Buddha doesn't start off with that. Mm-hmm. Well, so dukkha occurs earlier, but it really occurs only kind of sandwiched between two other things, right? Sandwiched between pleasant mm. and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So it's pleasant, unpleasant, you know, sugar, <laughs> sweetness, mm-hmm. sukha, uh-huh. dukkha, and asuka, adukkha. Mm-hmm. The Buddha doesn't start with dukkha. He starts, the first time dukkha is presented, it's really kind of just this flow. Interesting yeah. thought. The second thought that I'd never had before was that my practice has been, I mentioned this last week, um, for the last almost four years, I think, has been the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of breathing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the word dukkha any place in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has impermanence. And I'm wondering, it, it's, it has always seemed to me kind of like the quintessential Buddha uh, meditation practice in the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe his meditation practice didn't have dukkha any longer. 
He has, there's, he, he gets, you know, like parallel to that Satipatthana Sutta where there's Sukha Dukkha, Asukha Dukkha, but he doesn't do the Dukkha or Asukha Dukkha, he just says experiencing Sukha mm-hmm. and experiencing better than that, even yeah. PT rapture. Anyway, I just, I just, I never had those thoughts that how the, how Dukkha is positioned in the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta. Yeah, I, I, that was a lot of, um, I don't mean that in a, <laughs> but just kind of going back through it, you know, one is, yeah, I, I think you're right. As far as the dukkha that forms around that contracted mind and heart, I think that's, that was not there. And so, um, but my understanding is that when the Buddha taught, he was teaching directly to a person or a group of people. So the teachings that we have are varied. And the reason they're varied is because he taught what he, he thought was what that person or that group needed to hear in order to wake up. It was. <laughs> but maybe it was what they needed to hear in that moment. So it's hard to get the context. Um, as far as I think, in, as, in terms of your question of why, um, why no dukkha here, but the first teaching that he gave was to his um, companions after he woke up, and that was the four noble truths, the truths of dukkha, which was really coming out of his understanding of what it is, uh, how it's there and what we need to remedy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I can't speak to the ordering. That I don't know. Um, and I don't want to presume. <laughs> I don't want to presume that I know. Um, and there's, there might be scholars and, and people who have really thought more about the ordering of it all, and I, I haven't. Um, but it's an interesting question, and... It's where the value, I think, of these suttas, of the teachings, suttas as the teachings, um, the written teachings of the Buddha. Um, and I think, you know, they're meant to have us question and relate it back to our own experience and see how do we relate and to engage in conversation and questioning and, and answering back and forth. It's really part of the value of, of the suttas, so... I'd keep the question going if it's relevant and um, and just see how it, it informs your practice. And if it doesn't, then I would move on. <laughs> but if it does in some way find some meaning for you or inspiration, then to keep going with that. Maybe there's one more. Yeah. Um, so, I guess my question is around, um, I'm feeling like there's a, a lot of, a high level of dukkha in society right now. Yeah. And people that are aware are feeling that. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling that. And sometimes I'm having a hard time. I'm feeling like there's a big weight yeah. on me, and I'm having trouble um, balancing. Yeah, with that. Yeah, it's it, it. It appears in my my sleep. I'm not sleeping very well, and um, 
I just wonder what you have to say or offer around around this issue. Yeah. Like I know. there's always been suffering, of course, but it seems that it's very um present. Yeah. I think um well we've talked about it a lot, I think, here, and um it's so um, it's so true. I, I, I think it is. I think it's, we have more access to knowing than maybe we have, at least in a long time. Maybe when we, it was a time where, um, communal life was, was everything, um, and so you knew the suffering of your particular, um, community, village, or, you know, uh, I'm thinking, geographical location, um, community. Um, and so that I imagine in some place was, was equally intense. Um, but we, you know, at least in certain, um, Western culture have been away from that from a really long time. And now we have a whole new way of knowing not just our geographical community suffering, but of the global um, scale. And um, we're not prepared to hold that. And what I've been exploring for myself is that I don't think as human beings we're meant to. I don't think we're wired to take that in and be balanced. So an unbalanced is, I think, appropriate. <laughs> um, and that might not be helpful <laughs> in terms of what to do, but maybe just to know that yeah, I, I question a little bit if someone is, is really tuned into it all and feeling totally balanced in it all the time. Um, I wonder about that. And I haven't met that person. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I just don't think we're, we're, our, our psyches are, are, are designed for this. And, um, so some of the things that I, I find helpful uh, is one, being conscious of that. And so knowing how much, like where is my edge here? Um, where do I want to focus my attention? Is there a particular cause, event, community that I want to focus in on? I find that to be really helpful. And then within that... Um, Staying in, in touch with this, this contraction release. You know, as I, um, engage in certain ways, uh, does it, am I engaging in a way that's fully contracted? How far do I want to go with that engagement in that moment, in that state? Maybe not that far. You know, maybe I just kind of hover, uh, and then, uh, you know, when I can come back, collect, ground, breathe, and then reapproach it, you know. Um, noticing the signs of overwhelm, not sleeping, uh, you know, if your diet has changed, you know, eating tons of sugar or um, uh, oily stuff to ground, um, or you just don't have an appetite at all, uh, when the mind is just so overwhelmed and in that tangle, um, and there's anxiety that's coming up. Um, anxiety bouncing back to, from anxiety to depression. Really knowing these signs and knowing that, okay, it's time to 
to care for myself and then seeing what is it that really nourishes. For some people, um, it's kind of taking your time away from all of it. Um, for other people, finding ways to engage where you feel like um, you can engage with generosity, the practice of generosity and gratitude, and feeling into that reciprocal relationship can um, bring in more balance into our heart and our mind. And then in terms of the practice itself, um, utilizing grounding practices, um, compassion practices. I've taught a little bit um, uh, this tenderness practice that I've been playing around with and developed. It's not a in, it's not a Buddhist thing as much as just my own um, practice that I that I created to help with overwhelm. Um, so just finding ways to engage uh, in soothing, to come back to to something that's more. Um, Resilient in these moments where resilience is just desperately needed to, to turn on the news. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I hope that's helpful. Okay. Okay. So we, we're gonna end because it's time. Um, let's see. So I hope this was satisfying in some way. <laughs> Maybe it's impermanent, but I do hope that nevertheless. And so we'll dedicate... Oh, good! <laughs> so we'll dedicate um, our time together. So the practice that we did together, um, exploring the Dharma together, this is wholesome activity. Um, doing it in a place that is safe. This is, this is a wholesomeness. And so we may come here for ourselves, but really when we practice in this way and cultivate in this way, um, it has a ripple effect that goes out into the world. It has an effect on the people that we love, that we care about. Um, it has an effect on the people we work with. It has an effect on our community and the people we interact with throughout the day. And then I think it has an, uh, an effect that ripples out in ways that we don't even understand. And so in that spirit, we can dedicate this evening to all beings everywhere. And in particular, there's um, these beings who are on your mind right now. This one says, To my child, Rue, who is transitioning from female to male. So we have uh, Rue in our hearts and minds during this time. Uh, for my sister, Anne, heading into palliative care. Uh, we have Anne on our hearts and minds. To Rita, who's struggling with addiction and needs support. Keeping Rita in mind and in our heart. For Susie, suffering from profound depression. Keeping Susie in our heart and mind. To Elizabeth, who had pulmonary, who had a pulmonary embolism. Um, I hope that she's doing better. To Richard Borgstrom, uh, my dear father, who passed away on this day in 2010. So for Richard and for who's, whoever Richard belongs to, um, that we're keeping you both uh, in our heart and mind. 
And so with that, we dedicate the merit to all beings everywhere. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings find that true happiness and the release of the mind and heart. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Thank you for your attention.